You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. So if you will stand with me as we stand on the solid rock of God's word, we're going to hear this story uh, that continues with a sermon. So notice this, you know, you know you're getting preaching because it says there in verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, and notice this parenthetical, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, I want you to catch this. Preachers like to have a complete product. They want to have an introduction, a middle, and an end. They like to finish their sermons. But may God do this today. May God not let me finish the sermon in this way. Because notice what happens. Before the sermon gets over, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Maybe in those some days he was able to finish his sermon. I don't know. Let's pray. God, we ask that your spirit will show up today with power and that we will sense and know when we leave here that you are the Lord of all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I've spent a fair amount of time in my last 30 years writing. I don't write so much as I type. It's a good thing because my handwriting is atrocious. But anyway, as a writer, I know that there are times when I need to say something, and it may not be the most, what at first seems to be the most important thing, uh, but it needs to be there. So I'll put it in a parenthetical, in parentheses, right? Usually what you put in a parentheses is uh, necessary, but maybe not as necessary as other things. But I want to show you in the text, if you have your copy of Scripture and you're looking at my particular translation, the ESV, not sure about all the other translations, but I found it interesting that the only part of our text that's in a parenthetical is this little bitty phrase there in 36, he is Lord of all. So in this instance, the parenthetical is where the power is. 
The parentheses is what we're focusing on here today. First and foremost, we believe that Jesus is Lord of all. This is important because as we've gone through the book of Acts, remember what we're doing. Acts 1-8 is sort of like the table of contents. Let me read it to you again. Jesus says his last words before he ascends to the Father. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And notice in this passage, the Holy Spirit has shown up. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here we are in chapter 10, and now we're already, after just 10 chapters, we're heading to the ends of the earth. The rest of this book is about the multiplication of the church's ministry among the Gentiles, spreading to all corners of the earth. I'm amazed as archaeologists continue to find things buried in the dirt all over Europe that go back to the second and third centuries that are Christian relics. Let me tell you something. These Christians got moving, and they got moving fast. I mean, going from Palestine up to, to, to what's now Great Britain in just a matter of a few years, that takes something before you could fly there, okay? It's a big deal. They were moving quick, and more on that in a minute. But I want to tell you this. I think that as God begins to shape us, we need to realize that our view of the world, our view of ministry, our view of the calling that God has in our lives, it should never be static. If you are a child of God, you should be a person who is continually growing in the grace of Jesus Christ. And when you are growing in the grace of Jesus Christ, that means he's going to take you further and further than you ever imagined. That's exactly what we see happening in this passage. In fact, I believe we must have a worldview that grows until we are reaching the whole world. Amen? We cannot stop until we have a vision that gives us the ability to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, as Jesus told us. But to do this, people have to change. Peter had to change. As we discovered last week, he had been told all of his life that he could only eat kosher food, and the next thing you know, he's having to go get some pork barbecue. I was working with a, with a kid one time. I, my very first job, real job, was at a car wash. I'm sure you guys would love to go back in time and see that, okay? But I was working at a car wash, and, and let's just say that the, the company I worked with, they were a little bit rough. Um, language was a little bit colorful. Lots of Greek and Aramaic, um, that kind of thing. Um, you know, I'm, 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 a, I'm a, a pretty sheltered uh, young man. Anyway, this, this one uh, guy who was sitting next to me one day, we were actually backing out of the car, and I asked him if he was going to do something. He said, no, I ain't going to do that. He said, that's against my mama. I never heard that before. No, I knew what it felt like to go against my mama. Don't get me wrong. But I had never heard that. That's against my mama. Well, Peter, he's hearing this voice from the Lord, and the Lord's telling him to do something that he would have said, that's against my mama. But hear this, Christ's vision should stretch us to the ends of the earth, but we must allow the Spirit to stretch us. I want you to get that. When I'm asking you if you're brave enough to change, I know the answer already, no. I know you don't wanna change. I know that the average person has no desire to do anything different than what's comfortable, but I'm believing that the Holy Spirit is gonna interject a little courage into you so that you can be more courageous tomorrow than you were today. That's what God does. See, obedience doesn't lead us to a comfortable place. It leads us to a faithful place, but it requires us to be uncomfortable. 
And the question this morning is, each of us individually, I'm not speaking so much of the church corporately, but I'm speaking of you individually, are you willing to be made uncomfortable if that's what it takes for the kingdom to work through you? You have to be willing to say, Holy Spirit, show me. Show me if I am finding only comfort in the familiar, in the routine, in the status quo. We must not allow the status quo to guide us. If we take Jesus seriously in Acts 1-8, then the main goal is to reach the world. Not just a little bit. God is causing us to see, I believe, in the book of Acts, not just our passage, but the book of Acts and really the whole New Testament, that we are called to reach the whole world. But we must stretch so we can reach. We've been talking about reaching 8,400 people. We already have some of those uh, representative ping pong balls out there. It's so weird to say ping pong balls and souls in the same sentence, but I'm going to be saying that a lot this year. Um, Every one of those gospel interactions equals a ping pong ball in that box out there. Listen, I realize that that's going to be a little bit of a stretch. But again, let me say, we must stretch so we can reach. How many of you? are ever at the grocery store and that one loaf of bread that you need is on a, on a shelf just a little too high, you know, and you have to do what? You have to stretch. Now, if, if you're like me and things don't stretch like they used to stretch, at first that stretching doesn't feel good. But the reality is, is that once you've stretched, it actually does, you realize, make you feel better. So let's do something, a little bit of exercise so that Baptists don't fall asleep on me this morning. I'd like for everybody, you can sit down because I know you just, you've stood up too much today. I can already tell it. So tired. Bless your hearts. I want you to do this. Just raise your hands like this and stretch as far as you can. Oh, oh, Johnny, is this what it's like to preach in front of a Pentecostal church? Okay, here we go. Yeah, there we go, baby. So, so where's my drums now? That's what I want to know. Nonetheless, sometimes you have to stretch to reach. And when you stretch, you realize that it was a good experience. I pray that we will learn to stretch, church, that we will get that good feeling when we break free from our traditions When we break free from those things that bind us, then we get to go where God wants to take us. Think about that. Where does God want to take us? And it really is simple, very, very simple. And so today what I want to do is show you three very simple truths. The first, I'm just going to share with you what the gospel looked like and sounded like in the first century. Second, we're going to talk about what it means to preach. And third, we're going to talk about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Those are the three main movements of this text. And they are simple. There's nothing um, overtly profound here. But I'm here to tell you, if the church is going to reach out like it did in the book of Acts, we must start looking more like the book of Acts. We have to let go of anything that is keeping us from being like this church. So let's talk first about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe this is the most important thing in the world. I believe the fact that God wants to stretch us can be unsettling, no doubt, but he is stretching us all the way down to our hearts so that we can spread the simple message of the cross. It's interesting that we would have to stretch to get back to the gospel. 
But over time, a church can allow a lot of things to become its focus. And those focal points are not necessarily gospel-centric. So if you think about the madness, and you probably think I'm mad, and that's okay. The madness of having 8,400 gospel conversations, really all that has been, that conversation for the last several months is just trying to help us all realize the importance of the gospel and of sharing it. That's all that's for. Now, the actual stretching happens when we share. The actual stretching happens when we start looking for new ways to reach more people. Friends, you must be willing to be uncomfortable so others can experience the comfort of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A comfortable Christian most likely is not a witnessing Christian. A Christian who is satisfied with the status quo is not going where they ought to go, not going out as they should. Now, let me show you Peter's aha moment. Every one of us, we, many of us in this room, we were raised in church. We've heard many a sermon and many a song, gospel song. We've heard all that, but at some point in our lives, we have to have an aha moment. Uh, oh, that's what you're saying to me, God. Let me show you Peter's in verses 34 and 35. Notice it says, truly, Peter says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Way to go, Captain Obvious. Jesus said in Acts 1-8, this very thing, and it took you 10 chapters, Peter, to get there, he is a Baptist. Anyway, <laughs> Peter, Peter finally gets it. He goes, oh, that's what Jesus is saying to me. My job isn't to keep things here. My job is to take things out there. Nothing new is learned theologically here, but something changes. Something changes in him so that he begins to do things a little bit different. God is at work in people everywhere. Our job, therefore, is to share the gospel everywhere. And the question is, what do we need to change in our hearts to get to that place? If we have received the touch of God in our lives, it is a special feeling. But I'm afraid that too many of us are living in the past, excited about what God did in our lives, and we forgot that God still wants to do some awesome things in our lives today. If we are caught up in the feelings of the past, we will not be able to share the gospel as we ought to. The word partiality is a, is a big word. We don't use a word like partiality in older speech. In English, we say that you're being partial. We use that sometimes. But partiality is a little bit of an archaic term, but let's talk about that because the Bible sure does. The Bible talks about the sin of partiality in Romans 2, Ephesians 6, Colossians 3, James 2, 1 Peter 1. That's a lot of passages right there. And if that doesn't convince you or convict you that partiality, though it may be an arcane word, it's a big deal, listen to this. Genesis 12, Deuteronomy 10, Micah 6. The Bible keeps warning us about partiality. Why? Well, partiality just means that I give my attention unevenly to one person as opposed to another. And in the book of James, for instance, that partiality is driven by greed or money, uh, putting the people who have resources on the front row uh, so that they feel better about that. And James warns against that. Now, that's one form of partiality. 
The truth is, is that the Hebrew people had a different kind of partiality, which meant that they were focused just on their ethnicity, their nation, their people. Now, God had preached against this in those passages I told you, Genesis 12, Deuteronomy 10, the prophet Micah chapter 6, and even hinted that Gentile nations like Egypt would be blessed alongside of Israel. Now, let me just say something. Every once in a while, I'll say something for shock value, and, and everybody go, ooh. Well, when God said to Israel, hey, Egypt's going to be right next to you as your brother, that was one of those, ooh, are you kidding me? God had been saying that they needed to stretch to the Gentiles, even to Egypt all along. That passage, by the way, is Isaiah 19. But we see that the Israelites kept saying no. They did not go where they were supposed to go when God said. Now, I was thinking about this. God's word has always had wheels. God's word has always had wheels. It's always been meant to go. It's never been meant to stay in one location, one spot. God's word has always had wheels, but it looks like uh, the Hebrew people decided to just have an old wagon wheel. They can't go that fast. When we come to the New Testament and all those passages warning us against partiality, the reason why is because the gospel has wheels, but it needs to be faster than an old wheel. It needs to be Z-rated. Do you guys know that? A couple of my friends in here that know cars know this. Z-rated means that's as fast a tire as you can go. All right? Listen, the church needs to be Z-rated. We need to be able to go as fast as God would have us go. That's the gospel. The only way that we can do that, the only way the gospel will have that speed is if we take the gospel seriously. We must look for people in every nation who fear Jesus and want to do what is acceptable to him. That's what verse 35 tells us. Peter's job is not to question God, but to let people know that Jesus is the answer to their sins and salvation. How one does this can be found in verses 36 and following. In fact, if you look, starting in verse 36, we have a pretty good summary of preaching. Verse 37, you yourselves know what happened throughout Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. That's verse 37. Now, listen to what he says there. He says, what I'm preaching to you is, is connected to history. You know this happened. This is not a mythology like the Greeks and the Romans were so happy to always give people. This was history. So notice this. Peter founds this message on history. Now you'll notice sometimes, especially here in Acts, think about the last few sermons, how I've gone out of the way to show you the towns that we're talking about and the kind of people, even as far as to tell you what kind of commerce they did in those cities. And you say, why do you need to know that? Well, I guess you don't. But somebody who comes in the room and says, what are these guys talking about? They don't need to hear me just speculating on philosophy and theology. They first need to hear me say that this stuff happened. It's recorded in history and confirmed by extra biblical sources and resources. Preaching is not just on, on abstract principles. Preaching is founded on the word of God and the word of God is coming to us from history. But the people didn't fully understand all that Jesus had done. Peter helps them see that Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. 
And this is how he was able to do good and heal all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. That's verse 38. Jesus did all these good deeds and then was crucified by his own people. Notice it says, literally hanging on a tree, verse 39, reminding us that Jesus was cursed for us, but he did not remain in the grave. On the third day, he rose and he appeared to many. That's verses 40 and 41. Hear me. We don't need to argue with people. We need to share Jesus with people. Some of the people you share the gospel with will immediately be argumentative, and if you're like me, game on. Because you know, most arguments are like tic-tac-toe. You're never gonna win, right? Unless you got more X's than O's, and sometimes, man, I like having more X's than they have O's. I don't win people to Jesus that way. When I was younger, I thought that if I learned enough theology and had enough knowledge, I could win people to Jesus, and all I've found is, is there's no heart in that. Sometimes you share the gospel and the person's not ready and that's not your fault. We are not calling you to go out and argue with people. We're calling you to go out and share Jesus with people. All that Peter does here is tell the basic facts of who Jesus was. He doesn't get into the intricacies of theology. He doesn't talk about free will and sovereignty. He doesn't talk about any of those things. He just shares the story of Jesus. We're not called to argue. We are not called to go out there and try to force anybody to do anything. But I'm telling you, if you are faithful in sharing the gospel, God will be faithful in preparing the hearts. And sometimes you will find that person at peace. Jesus made an indelible mark on history. And those who are in any way open to historical truth will look at the scriptures and see that something special happened in Jesus. And if they keep asking questions, let me tell you where that will land them in the church. <laughs> Good questions about Jesus will lead to salvation and will lead to people being in church. Now, let's talk about the preaching ministry of the church, which is really what's going on here. But I'll have you focus on verses 42 and 43. Now, for a moment, let me just introduce you to uh, the job of a pastor. There are many, many ways to describe what I do for a living. I'm a minister, pastor, preacher, teacher, shepherd, elder, boss, CEO, circus ringleader, and cat herder. And those were just the first things that came to my mind. Um, you are expected to be able to know a little bit about everything. You have to be uh, like a CEO, to, like running a company. You have to be a, a master counselor. You have to be a, a theologian. You have to be a referee, all kinds of crazy things. It just, it never stops. But I want you to see here is this role of preacher that, that seems so evident in verses 42 and 43. And he commanded us, notice this, Peter says, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now let's talk about what it means to be a preacher. Now, on the one hand, what I'm doing today is a form of preaching, but in a very narrow technical sense. I am preaching, and obviously not everybody, I'm thinking most of you would say, if you wanted to just go ahead and hurry up and have a heart attack and die, you would do this every Sunday. Having to stand in front of a bunch of people and preach. Now, believe it or not, I, I get it. Like, there are days when, when I'm thinking about how scary you all are, and I'd rather just stay home, okay? <laughs> no, just kidding. You all don't scare me. But anyway... The reality is, this is a specific calling, okay? Preaching is a specific calling. I believe that. 
I, I believe that with all my heart. My job isn't to just teach you facts, but to motivate you uh, and believe that the Holy Spirit can change your behaviors. That's what preaching is all about. Now, the problem is, is that over the last 2,000 years, preaching has been too narrowly defined in the technical sense, which is what I'm doing here today. So if you were to say, most of you in this room, what is preaching? Uh, you, would, you would give an answer, kind of like what Jeremy did today. Now, I'd do it better, but you know, you would say, it's kind of like what Jeremy did. Okay, that's preaching. But what if I were to tell you that in the early church, that wasn't necessarily the facts. That wasn't how it worked. What I do on Sundays, what I do on Wednesdays is preaching, but I believe you were all called to preach. If I've ever baptized you, you know that one of the things I like to say to everybody that I baptize is this. There's going to be two sermons today. If I'm only doing one baptism, I say there's two sermons today. You're preaching the first one. Usually, especially the kids are like, uh-oh, what did I sign up for? And I, I only let them have like a half a second of existent, existential fear, okay? I'm not cruel. So I catch them and I say, no, 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 listen. The act of baptism is a sermon in picture form. It is a picture of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And I'll tell you that you will preach the gospel far better than I ever can by being baptized. This will be the best sermon today. You being baptized. I love saying that to people because I want them to know they are preachers. They are preachers in that moment. That's what Peter is saying here. He is telling us. Now, I notice it says that he commanded us to preach. Some might say that that is a direct reference just to the apostles, but that is not clarified. I think the us is more general there. I think the us refers to us, like all of us. We are all called to preach the gospel in the way we are called to preach. You, me, we're all different in, it, in this particular way. Preaching is a little bit different. If you sit down with me and I teach you the art of preaching, the science behind it all, one of the things I would tell you is that one of the most important things is that you don't preach like me or Billy Graham or anybody else. You preach like you. You be the preacher that God's called you to be. I say that to all of you. All of you are called to share the gospel and preach the gospel. Don't do it like me. Do it like you've been called to do it. I'll give you the basics, but you need to share the gospel with your words and your illustrations and your thoughts. Now, what does this look like? If preaching isn't just a Sunday morning thing and it's an everyday thing, what is it? Let me give you three very quick ideas here. First, Preaching is sharing with the world what Jesus did during his earthly ministry. I've already shared this with you, but we're going to put it down here so you can see it. This is one of those few times you can get your phone out and take a picture. Okay, so verse 38. This, it, this shows us that preaching has to be founded on Jesus and on what he did in his earthly ministry. Secondly, preaching is warning people that there are consequences for not turning to Jesus. So you can't just say, there was this guy named Jesus, he was really great, what do you think about that? But you also have to take it that next step, this is where the courage comes in, and you have to say, Jesus gives everybody in the world a choice. We believe in him and are safe from our sins, or we reject him, and we are then under the judgment of God. So preaching is simply talking about Jesus who lived, and then challenging people that he lived and died for our sins. Notice we are all prophets in this way. Preaching is sharing gospel hope 
and the forgiveness of sins we have in Jesus' name. That's verse 43. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So preaching basically is talking about the Jesus who lived and died and was buried and rose again, warning people of the consequences of not trusting in Jesus, but then sharing the gospel hope of forgiveness of sins in Jesus's name. That's what preaching is. No more, no less, okay? But there's one more thing I would say. It's not really about the preaching. So I say, you know, no more, no less. Now I'm going to say one more thing. What a preacher thing to do. And by the way, I'm thinking that the extra large as opposed to the large coffee at Dunkin' Donuts this morning might have been a bad idea. But anyway, um, the Holy Spirit is the key here. You can say all the right things and never have the right results because ultimately the power of salvation is the power of God and the Holy Spirit has to work. I've already pointed out in verse 44 that Peter doesn't finish his sermon. While he was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit broke out. God amazes the Jews and the Gentiles with the gift of the Holy Spirit. They begin to speak in tongues and they are extolling God. Now just keep in mind that's all in the context of order and worship. I don't understand all that this means, but it means that God showed up and it was obvious that God was there. So that's what's going on in verse 46. But let me just give you three more because we're preachers and preachers like three points. Here we go. Let me give you three indications of the Holy Spirit being poured out first. And this is the most simple truth. When the Holy Spirit shows up and shows out, everyone is amazed. Even, even if you were raised in a more charismatic environment, when it really is God, you know the difference. You can be in exciting services and feel good, but when you are in a service where God is on the march, that's different. That's the Holy Spirit. Or let me bring it down to just your conversations. There are some conversations you're gonna have with people when you share the gospel and you feel like you did everything right and they're like, no thank you. And there are other times where you don't think you did one thing right and they're like, I wanna be saved. You see, the difference is the Holy Spirit. He shows up. The second thing is this. The enemy wants you to know or think that you have no power, but you do have power. When God's power works through you, people come to know Christ and are baptized. You do have access to the power of God. So let me just say this. When there is success in your ministry, it's because the Holy Spirit showed up. And this last point is this. Do you want to be surprised by God? And that question really is important because too many of us are looking to be comfortable and settled in our church-like ways. But when we understand the power of the Holy Spirit, then we are ready to be surprised by God. What is God doing in your heart? What is he doing to knock you out of your routine, your comfort zone, your spiritual stagnation? God reached out to a man named Cornelius through another man named Peter and revival uh, came as a result of that faithful gospel witness. Think about the 8,400 Think how many of those faithful gospel witnesses where you stretch and reach, how many of those could lead to revivals that could burn across this land and around this world for generations to come. Ask God to show you where you have been holding back. Ask God to give you passion 
for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you may preach it to the world, but also ask that he will fill you with the Holy Spirit. Let's go back and end where we started. This whole passage is anchored on the parenthetical. That little phrase in parentheses, Jesus is Lord of all. So you ask the question, what's next for Ridgecrest? Let me put it in the most simple terms I know. A complete surrender to the sovereignty of God. A complete surrender to God's will where we individually and corporately say, Jesus is Lord of all. If there is any idol, any hindrance, any holdback, anything keeping you from being able to say, Jesus is Lord of all, I'm gonna invite you to come to the altar. The only way that you can grind up those idols, get rid of those sins, is by the resurrection power of Jesus. Idols die when the risen Christ shows up. Let Christ rise in your heart, amen? Let him rise up in your heart so that he can be all and that we'll quit playing the game of Christianity and we will become Christians. Amen. Father, move. Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us or get connected, visit ridgecrestbaptist.org.